I'm going to do my very best to slow down my cadence today, as I was warned last time uh, that I moved a little quickly. Um, my uh, students ask me all the time um, when I chastise them when they don't read and encourage them to read, um, well, who should I read? Who's your favorite author? Um, and anyone that loves books, it's a difficult question to answer who your favorite author is. Everyone has many. Um, if I was pushed um, to the test and had to answer, I'd probably, at least right now, say G.K. Chesterton. Um, I found Chesterton about two years ago, um, and I've devoured almost everything he wrote, and uh, he wrote voluminously. I shouldn't say everything. I didn't read any of his, uh, his literature, but all of his nonfiction. Um, and Chesterton, um, I encourage all of you to read him. He's awesome. And if you're going to start, start with Orthodoxy, um, which is not as dry as it sounds. It's actually the probably single most fun thing you could ever read. Um, it actually makes you giddy when you read Chesterton. He's such a, a master with words. Um, but Chesterton's a master of the one-liner. Um, and one of his favorite, one, one of my favorite of his one-liners um, is he says, the soul never speaks until it speaks in poetry. In our day-to-day -day conversations, we do not speak, but only talk. Um, and he said this talking about Shakespeare, um, that truth really only comes out in stories. In our day-to-day -day conversations, are, there's no truth, there's no speaking truth, it's just social niceties and a talking. And there's something about speaking that is a deeper truth than simply talking. Um, and this has to be done, Chesterton thought, many times in stories. Um, Pastor Vance from the pulpit last week mentioned C.S. Lewis feeling the same way. Um, Lewis was an apologist at first and then moved into storytelling and writing stories because he thought there was more truth that could be conveyed in stories. Uh, T.S. Eliot, a uh, great 19th or 1900s poet, um, author of The Wasteland and J. Alfred Prufrock, um, Eliot was a philosopher at first, and he was going to get his dissertation in philosophy, and he moved away from philosophy because he thought there was no truth in philosophy. There was truth in poetry, though. Um, and even Christ, when Christ spoke and his disciples would come up and ask him questions, you know, you know, Master, what was the kingdom of heaven like? And he doesn't tell them what it's like, right? He says, it's like a mustard seed. He tells them parables. He tells them stories. Um, so last week and today, we get to dip into two stories that will hopefully help us to speak uh, more than to talk. And that's the wonders of Plato. Uh, Plato tells us stories. He tells us dialogues, conversations. Um, and we can grasp truth in a much more, I don't know, accessible manner um, when we're told these stories. Um, as a recap from last week, we went over the Republic. And the central question of the Republic was, what is justice? And Socrates decided that, well, in order to find out what justice is, let's set up a just society find out what it would make that society just, and then relate those things back to the individual. And in the just society, he said, the society that he creates, his utopian idea of a society, would be just if there was a proper balance between what he called the gold souls, the silver souls, and the bronze souls. Basically, all the different people in the society need to do their proper part. And when there's proper balance, there's harmony, and hence justice. And then he takes that idea, and he relates it back to the individual. And he said, what then is it that makes an individual just? And he says, a just individual is one that has a just soul or a well-balanced soul. You must have wisdom, courage, and appetite, but you must have the proper proportion of these things. And that's where he gave the analogy that we went over last week 
of the chariot, right? Your soul is like a chariot, and wisdom must be the charioteer that controls your two horses, appetite and courage. If you only have courage and you don't have wisdom guiding it, you're not going to be a balanced individual, and hence you won't be a just individual. So we saw for Plato that justice, whether it be in the city-state or whether it be in the individual, is deeply tied to this idea of balance and harmony. And Plato, we talked about last week, the, one of the wonderful things about the Republic is he's able to self-critique. He critiques himself and he says, I've set up this ideal society, but it will never last because of three reasons. And those three reasons we gave last week were, we're not going to get this community that he wants, a communal aspect to everyone sharing in one bond. We're never going to overcome sexism and we'll never get the philosopher king that we need. And then we traced back those ideas from Plato and see how where Plato said, but we can never get these things, we see them accomplished through Christ, right? The idea that we'll never overcome sexism. Christ is born, God becomes man in the incarnation through a woman, through Mary, right? And exalts womanhood in doing so, right? We talk about the idea of the early church, how women flocked to the church so much that they had to actually have an edict from the emperor of Rome saying, stop calling on the households of women. He told the Christian missionaries, you can't call on women anymore because the church provided so much freedom for them that they were flocking to it. And it was ruining the, uh, the free market aspect of religion. All the women were in one religion and they weren't in the other religion. So uh, they told them to stop. So we saw that we overcome sexism through the church. Um, the idea of the philosopher king that Plato thought we could never get because we could never get outside of the cave. Well, we talked about how the philosopher king didn't leave the cave. The philosopher king came into the cave, right, in Bethlehem. He came to us. The forms came to us. And so we can have the philosopher, the ruler of our kingdom. And that kingdom is what? It is the church. The communal aspect that Plato said we could never get in the world is established here in the church. And in a very, very real way. Right? This is one community that we talked about, that we actually are, in, I don't want to say indoctrinated, but we are introduced or brought into the church under the sign of baptism, saying, you are part of this new family. You are a family, and you partake of one food. Right? You partake of the Eucharist, um, Christ's body and his blood. So you share in the communal meals that Plato said we, we would never get in the ideal society. Um, and even further, we have a shared language, right? The liturgy of the church. So there is a deep communal aspect. Um, and this is something that the modern world that Pastor Vance has been talking about a lot from the pulpit lately that we've missed. Um, we have a very, very individualized, spiritualized version of Christianity these days, which is completely separate from anything we would get in scriptures. Um, many Christians are surprised to note um, that never once in the entire Bible does the word Christianity appear. There's no talk of Christianity in the Bible. There's never even a glimmer or a hint of a Christian life that is separated from the church. Not at all. And we have this modern idea of this personal relationship, this individual relationship. That's not in the Bible. That's an invention of bad theologians and more likely politicians. Um, because when we're divided, when we're individualized, well, what the church stands for can easily crumble because we're not united under the church, right? The Bible says we are united by what? One faith, one hope, one baptism, right? These things in the church that we do, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the liturgy, these aren't 
metaphysical, theological add-ons to your personal relationship with God. This is your community. Um, when Christ says, well, I make man anew and we're renewed, well, we're renewed and we're supposed to live in a certain way. We're given a new community to join, and this is the community. Um, too often the modern world sees the church as sort of a club for religious people. You're a religious person by yourself, and you join this club because that's where you guys get together. But that's not what the Bible talks about. It talks about this being Christ's new creation, his community, um, and you join that community. And that's the unity um, that's provided in Christ. Um, so that's kind of a recap of what we did last week. Um, today we get to talk about something equally as fun and awesome, the Euthyphro. Uh, the Euthyphro is, the Euthyphro was a man, and Euthyphro is the name of one of Plato's famous dialogues. Not quite as famous as the Republic, um, and this will be our last lecture on Plato, and we'll move on to Aristotle next week. Um, but let's set the setting of what's going on in Euthyphro. Um, What's going on is Socrates of Athens is heading off to court because, as we talked about in the first week, um, Socrates had two charges that were brought against him that he has to now go stand before the court for. He was charged with corrupting the youth of Athens, and that was because he had taught the children to question authority. Remember that there is certain ideals, and you should, through the Socratic method, continue to question authorities. But the people that were bringing the charges against Socrates understood that this charge alone would not be enough to get the penalty of death that they wanted. So they said, also we're going to charge Socrates with introducing new divinities or adding a new god into the Greek pantheon of gods, which is something that he could be punished by death for. Now Socrates certainly didn't do this. And we remember, if you remember back a few weeks back, we talked about Socrates was sort of a mystic um, and he would spend time meditating like this for days on end. And people would say, well, clearly he's introducing a new god and when he would snap out of his little trance or whatnot, he would say, no, I'm not introducing a new God. I'm simply speaking to my daemon or to my spirit. Daemon is Greek for spirit. Um, so Socrates is off the court and he's wandering and he's walking towards the court and he bumps into a man by the name of Euthyphro. And he says, Euthyphro, what is it that you're doing here? And he says, well, I'm going to court as well. And Socrates says, well, what are you going to court for? He says, I'm going to bring charges of murder against my father. Socrates says, wow, that's pretty heavy stuff. That's pretty weighty. Um, you must certainly know what justice is if you're willing to bring charges of murder against your own father. Now, most of us put in that same situation. Um, if a loved one of yours, your own father, even if he had committed murder, most of you probably wouldn't be the one that would be prosecuting your own father, right? You I know myself, right? If my dad killed someone, I'm probably thinking, all right, how can we get him to Mexico? Let's hide him in Canada for a while. Like, I'm probably, even if he was wrong, right? He's my dad. I'm not going to, but Socrates says, wow, Euthyphro, you are one just individual that you have such moral fiber and character that you're willing to bring charges of murder against your own father. And Euthyphro says, I certainly am. And Socrates does this throughout the dialogues all the time, right? He sets up the sophist or the interlocutor, uh, the antagonist, and he praises them. So they puff themselves up with pride, and then he slashes them to pieces towards the end of the dialogue. Um, so he says, Euthyphro, tell me why you're bringing charges of murder against your father. And Euthyphro says, well, my father is a very wealthy man, and he owns a large farm. And he has many different servants and slaves on this farm. Well, he hired one laborer for the day, 
and this laborer got drunk, and he killed one of the other slaves. So my father went to the drunk laborer, took him, tied him up, and he put him into a ditch. And then he went to get the authorities. By the time he came back, the man that had killed the slave was dead. My father murdered him. And most of us right off the bat are thinking like, no, he didn't murder him. He did. It doesn't seem like that's right. But Euthyphro is trying to hold to some divine standard of justice. He says, no, 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 no. It is at my the, hand, the blood of that man are on the hands of my father. He certainly murdered that slave. Now, it took quite some time um, for Euthyphro's father to get back to the slave. So maybe there's some negligence involved, um, but it's not the, uh, he wasn't privy to the technology that we have today where he can just get on his cell phone and call the authorities, right? He's in the outskirts of Athens. He has to wander into Athens. It probably took him three or four days to get there, three or four days back. So the guy's been in the ditch for eight days. He dies. Um, so Euthyphro says, I'm going to bring charges of murder against my father. So Socrates says, then Euthyphro, you must be confident in knowing what justice is. And Euthyphro says, yes, I am. So Socrates says, tell me then, Euthyphro, what is justice? And Euthyphro's first answer to the question, he ends up giving three. The first answer Euthyphro gives is, justice is doing what I am doing right now. Prosecuting a guilty man. What's the problem with this first answer? And what do you think Socrates is going to see as the problem with this first answer? Justice is doing what I am doing right now. Hmm? Sure, right? He's begging the question a little bit. He's already pronouncing him as guilty. But if he says, justice is what I'm doing right now, that's simply an example of a just act. Right? This, doing this would be a just thing, which begs the question of what? What is it that makes doing that thing just? Right? So we're so used to um, describing things as by examples, but what Socrates always wanted to get to is what is the underpinning that makes that thing just? Right? It's a very difficult thing to get to. Right? If I asked you, well, what is a good act? A good act is helping an old woman across the street. Yeah, but what makes that act good? That's an example of a good act. And Socrates points this out to Euthyphro, and he says, well, that's simply an example of a just act, which begs the question that you already know what justice is. You haven't given me anything. Try again. And Euthyphro's a little bit ticked off right now, because think about him, right? This was a real man who was really going to prosecute his father for murder, so he was feeling pretty good about himself, and now his first answer to what justice is has been thrown aside. No, no, no. That's not what justice is. So he tossed it aside. So he says, Euthyphro, try again. What is justice? And Euthyphro says, all right, well, if justice isn't an act, it can't be an act, then justice is whatever the gods do. Whatever the gods do is just, and what they decide not to do is unjust. A little bit better of an answer than the first one. Slightly better. Um, but Socrates was a smart man. And like any lawyer... Um, in a court case, it's very, very important not only to know your own case, but to know your opponent's case. And Socrates knew Euthyphro very well. So he knew that Euthyphro subscribed to the polytheism of the Greek culture. So that means Euthyphro believed in many different gods. And the problem with that is, if we read Greek mythology, do the gods always get along? No. 
right? Most of Greek mythology are the gods warring with each other, disagreeing on things. So he said, Euthyphro, so are you telling me that all the gods agree? And Euthyphro says, oh, certainly they don't all agree. Well, he says, what is it that they disagree on? Do they disagree on matters of fact? And Euthyphro says, yeah, sometimes they do, right? Sometimes a god thinks something is just, and the other Greek god would say, no, that thing is not just. So Euthyphro, you are telling me that you deny the law of non-contradiction. Something can be both just and not just at the same time and in the very same sense. So your father right now is both just and not just. Or you are justified, I should say, in bringing these charges against your father, and you're not justified in bringing the charges against your father. And Euthyphro is very upset, even further upset at Socrates at this point. He says, okay, so that can't be what justice is. It can't be what the gods do. So Euthyphro backpedals a little further. And he says, justice then must be whatever all the gods agree on. There are certain things that all the gods agree on. Those things we will call just. All the things they disagree on will say we can't give a moral judgment to. We don't know. We're going to be indifferent about those things. Okay, slightly better, um, but now we have this problem of, all right, there's these three things we can agree on over here, and then the whole rest of the moral questions, we have to say, eh, we can't know because the gods disagree. So it's slightly better. At this point, Euthyphro's getting very, very upset with Socrates, um, and we get to what's called the central, or what is the central question of the dialogue, which has become known as the Euthyphro question, or the Euthyphro dilemma. And this is the central, the heart, the meat of the dialogue right here. Socrates asks Euthyphro, Euthyphro, is something good because God does it? Or does, or, or does God do things because they are good? I'll repeat that one more time. Euthyphro, Socrates asks Euthyphro, Euthyphro, is something good because God does it? Or does God do it? because it is good. And this is a very, very deep, what we would call metaphysical problem um, for most young Christians or most young believers that they haven't ever dealt with. Because there's a huge two-horned dilemma right here. Is something good because God does it, or does God do it because it is good? Well, let's take the first one. Something is good because God does it. Do we believe this as a church? Something is simply good because God does it. Well, what's the repercussions of that? What would we then have to attest? Something is simply good because God has chosen to do it. What might be a moral quandary we get ourselves into with that? Something is good because God does it. What do you think would be a problem with that? It's not rhetorical. I can get an answer. <laughs> Something is good simply because God does it. Yeah. Yeah, it would make morals arbitrary, right? If God would have commanded, right? Imagine the Ten Commandments would have read, thou shalt rape, thou shalt murder, thou shalt steal, thou shalt kill. Then we would have to say, well, God did it, so those things are good. And most of us are like, no, no, those would have never been good even if God did them. If God raped, murdered, steal, well, those things are still not good. Well, so the first answer, if everything God does is good, would make morals completely arbitrary. They just, the random whims and inclinations of a God. 
So it must be the second thing. God only does that which is good. Do we hold to that as a church? Yeah. No. Why? Because that makes something outside of God transcendent. Right. Right? That's, that's the perfect answer right there. Right? It says, God, if God only does that which is good, then that's God, you must imagine, before he acts, he says, hold on, let me check real quick. Is this thing good? Yes, it's good. I can do it. Well, if God is holding to a list of goodness, then that makes what? That list of goodness is God. Something is beyond God. And if something is beyond God, then God is not God. There's something beyond him. So we're at a huge problem right here for the Christian. You ask yourself, is something good for us believers in the church? Is something good because God does it? That would make morals arbitrary. Or is something, or does God only do that which is good? That's a huge problem. And when Socrates brings this up to Euthyphro, Euthyphro gives him the finger and walks off. He actually curses at Socrates and he says, forget you. And he storms off. And that's how the dialogue ends. The dialogue doesn't come to a conclusive answer. The answer is now for us to figure out. Because Euthyphro is so upset, he has no idea what justice is at this point, and he doesn't know if something is good because God does it, or God does that thing because it is good. Now, this question, which has become the Euthyphro dilemma, um, has been fleshed out in debates which are called the voluntarism debates, or schools of thought, which is known as voluntarism. And voluntarism is the discussion of freedom. Now, how does freedom have anything to do with what we're talking about here? Well, how does the church answer this question? What is the answer that the church has given to this Euthyphro dilemma? Is something good because God does it? Or does God do it because it's good? It's a basic question. And if you're questioning yourself right now, you're like, oh my goodness. Yeah, you probably should have thought about these things before. It's important. Right? That's why we're all called and Paul tells us we're all called to the philosopher's life, right? To question and to seek wisdom. Well, what's our answer? Well, the ancient church thought the question was easy. The question was, God only does that which is good because God is goodness. God isn't some extra thing that looks to goodness. God's nature is that he is goodness. Now, the reason most of us don't jump to that conclusion right away is because we always anthropomorphize God, right? We always think of him as some man and then these attributes, goodness, wisdom, justice, are things that he has as a man. No, no, no. He is that thing. God is goodness, right? Remember last week we talked about the Westminster Confession. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchanging in his being, goodness, power, holiness, justice, and truth. That's what God is. God is goodness. So the question then becomes, all right, can God do everything. And the church's answer has always been, no, God can't do everything. God cannot do everything. And why can't God do everything? God is so infinitely free, the church has said, that he is restricted, right? And that's a so weird, right? Because when we think of the word freedom, what do we think about? No restrictions, right? You can do whatever you want. But the ancient world and the ancient church fathers saw freedom in a completely different way than we see freedom today. God is so infinitely free that he can only do good because being restricted to do good is what actually makes someone free. Now, the modern conception of freedom is 
you can do what you want. Um, that you're free to do whatever you want. And I would ask each and every one of you today, well, being able to do what you want, is that something that actually makes you free? Now, if you were uh, to take a, my uncle's here today, right? He's got a little son, Luke. And if, and if he takes Luke to the candy store, and Luke's running around the candy store, and he says, Luke, I want you to be free. Do whatever you want in here. Right? And he tells him that. Is that a freeing act for Luke? That is the antithesis of freedom, right? His freedom destroys him, right? His freedom leads to the bondage of throwing up weird colors in the corner for the next couple hours, right? Throwing up Sour Patch Kids and, and, and candy bars, right? It'll be horrible, right? It, well, freedom would be what? Well, freedom, the ancient church thought, freedom is only the ability to do that which is good. And that is why God is infinitely free, because he has boundaries. God cannot sin. Why? Because he's weak? No, because he's free. God cannot do evil. Why? Because he's weak? No, because he's free. And that's why they ask those uh, atheists who ask stupid questions that aren't philosophically trained. Can God make a rock so big he can't move it? No, because God can't do that which is not in his nature. And his nature is so infinitely free. That's why he can't do that. You are not free, that's why you can do more things. You can do evil because you're not free, right? We start to see that the ability to do more things or not having limitations is actually what destroys humanity. Now, there's a second way that we can go back, and uh, many theologians have talked about this, and look at the Ten Commandments, right? The world looks at the Ten Commandments and they say, Look at what the Christians are restricted to. You become a Christian and you have all these restrictions that weigh you down on your life, right? They can't kill. They can't steal. They can't commit adultery. They can't dishonor their parents. And you start to look at the list and you're like, they are certainly commandments, right? God has commanded you to do these things. But why? Because he says, these restrictions will make you free. Right? If you are like Christ, you won't steal. And when you don't steal, what happens? You're more free, right? Because if you steal something, even if you don't get caught, well, you could get caught and you could go to jail, which would not be freeing. Or you could worry about the repercussions of somebody finding out, right? That's a not a freeing act, right? You can't dishonor your parents, right? Well, when you honor your parents, isn't your life better? Isn't it more free, right? All of the lists go through it. Oh man, I can't commit adultery. How many people have committed adultery? You're like, man, that was the most freeing act. I feel, I feel so free now that I've done that. No, these are the restrictions that God has given, not because he wants to be mean and say you can't do certain things. He says restrictions are what make us free. Now, the modern world does not see this. The modern world hasn't seen this at all. And we saw this played out many, many times on the world stage. Um, this idea of freedom was taken in two different ways at the, about the exact same period of time in world history. Um, we saw it in the American Revolution and the French Revolution, right? The Americans thought that they were free and they had freedom from Great Britain or should get freedom from Great Britain because of many different reasons. Um, but they thought that they were free only to do that which was good. They shouldn't be doing things that were not good when they were free. Their freedom was bound by something. It was entrenched in something. In the French Revolution, they had the rallying cry and everyone learns it in school, right? Liberté. Egalité, fraternity, liberty, egalitarianism, brotherhood, right? We have liberty. Well, the French took liberty in the modern sense, where liberty means you have permissiveness. 
You can do whatever you want. And the problem with permissiveness is permissiveness always moves to licentiousness, right? How did the French Revolution end? We have liberty! And so everyone's getting their heads chopped off in the street with guillotines. A lot of liberty. Right? Think about the modern world that we have today, right? We want liberty, and we cry for liberty, and we do things in the name of choice and freedom and liberty. But these are all the things that end up enslaving us. Right? Think about in, in, the, in the 60s and the 70s when we have the sexual revolution. Yeah, we're free to do what we want. Yeah, now there's tons of people dead from AIDS. Right? Well, was that, was that freeing? Was that a freeing act that we have? No, no, these things enslave us. Right? We have freedom of choice. No, no, no. Real freedom is the ability to choose that which is good. And when we don't choose that which is good, we end up enslaving ourselves. Now, there's a fantastic book um, from a historian by the name of Oz Guinness. Um, he wrote it about, I think it couldn't have been longer than two years ago. I think, Matt, you might have read it. Um, and it's called America and Sustainable Freedom. Um, and it's a really, really fascinating read. It's kind of a, it's one of those books that you read, and it's U.S. history that everyone knows, but the story that none of us know about it. Um, the things that you're like, oh my goodness, wow, that was pretty obvious. And he just, and he sheds light on it. And the idea that he talks about in the book is that the American founders, they had an idea for sustainable freedom. They didn't just have an idea of, hey, let's get free, but they had an idea of, how can we make this freedom last forever? And he talks and he goes through and he gives tons and tons of examples in the book about all of the framers. And I'm talking about all of them, John Jay, George Mason, John Adams, Jefferson, Washington, they all said the same things in many of these areas. They said, we have a threefold task as Americans. And the first task in order to be free is we need to achieve our freedom. They said, we need to achieve our freedom. And we definitely did that, right? 1776, we achieved freedom. We broke away from Great Britain and we were free. But the founders understood that this was nothing special that they had done. It was special, but it wasn't unique, I should say, right? There's many other countries that had founded, their, had started a revolution and become free, and it didn't work out as well, right? 1949, the Chinese Revolution, they, they got freedom. It didn't end the same way, right? 1919, the Russian Revolution, they got their freedom. It didn't end the same way. Well, that was the first task that the framers set out for, right? Get freedom. The second task they set out was to, well, we need to somehow order freedom. What a wonderful idea, right? You can't just get freedom and have it over here by yourself. Just like the Bible says, you can't be some Christian over here on an island by yourself. You need to have your Christianity ordered by something. And the framers said, we can't just have freedom because if freedom is everyone's individualized version of freedom, then nobody will be free because everyone will be enslaved to their passions. So they said, we must order freedom. And that, 1787, right, we made the Constitution, right? We wrote the Constitution. We said, our freedom, we have freedom, but it's not freedom to do whatever you want. It's freedom that has to be checked by these boundaries. If it doesn't fit into this, no, no, no. You might think that will make you free. It's going to enslave you. Stick to these rules. And they ordered freedom. The Chinese didn't do that in 1949. The Russians certainly didn't do it in 1919. They didn't have an ordered freedom. The French didn't do it. They didn't have an ordered freedom. And what we saw was decay because their freedom was the modern conception of freedom, 
Whereas our founders had a deep tie to this Euthyphro story, and they understood that freedom had to be checked. Now, they had these ideas, and throughout the book, Guinness um, talks about, and it's wonderful how you see that all of these framers and founders of our country, they read two of the same men. All of them read Polybius, the ancient Greek historian, and all of them, I mean all of these framers, read Cicero, the Roman order. They read Cicero, and they read Polybius. And Cicero and Polybius are very, very explicit in their writings about what will tear down a society, what will cause a society to fall apart. And they list, they list three reasons, very neatly and nicely, that we can always have three in these things, it seems. They list three reasons for why societies would fall. The first, they said societies fall because of external menaces, right? outside pressure. Right? One of the reasons, although it definitely wasn't the main reason, that Rome fell was the Visigoths, right? the barbarians attacking them. That's part and parcel why countries fall. But the framers weren't very worried about this idea of an external menace taking them over. Uh, Washington even famously quipped, shall we have a transatlantic Bonaparte? Right? He says, come on, what's Napoleon going to cross the Atlantic and take us over? Right, we don't have to worry about an external menace. That's not going to be the reason America falls. Now, in today's day and age, maybe that's a more realistic notion, right? More realistic than before, but still, we do feel somewhat safe here, right? Because of our accidental geographic location, right? It makes us feel safe, right? If we just happen to be stuck right in the Middle East, your geographic location would make you feel a little less safe, right? Even if you were a free place, right? My brother was over in Jordan, and Jordan was an ally of ours for a while, but even when he's in Jordan, you're like... His geographic location makes you feel like he's close. The enemy's close. So maybe we could have an external menace, right? But the framers weren't really worried about that. They said, all right, so Polybius and Cicero, I don't think we have to worry about an external menace as tearing down us and keeping us from sustaining freedom, right? Which was the third task they have. They want to be able to sustain freedom, keep it forever. We said the second thing that's going to tear down republics, Cicero and Polybius, they said, it's time. They said, time will tear down all republics. And Lincoln famously says, as one of his uh, many one-liners, the silent artilleries of time are ruining the ramparts of the republic, right? The silent artilleries of time. What's ruining the republic? Time. Because things that were fresh when you wrote them down in 1787, even in Lincoln's day, less than 100 years later, he's like... Well, people don't see them as important anymore because they're old, right? We don't need to stick to those things. And the modern world feels that way about the church um, in large part, right? The church is old. They've been perpetuating the same ideas, sticking with the same tradition for 2,000 years, right? What could that have to do in the age of Twitter and Facebook, right? They're outdated, right? This in philosophy we would call the fallacy of ad antiquitum to assume that something is worthless because it is old. Um, but, they, but the framers knew that. They said time will eventually erode all things. And then finally, the third reason, which they really, really focused on, why would we lose our freedom? They said the corruption of customs. We will lose our freedom when we have corruption of customs. That's what Polybius and that's what Cicero said. And that's what our framers focused on. Even in 1828, Lincoln gave a famous speech perpetuating the customs of the country. Perpetuating the customs of the country. And in the speech, what Lincoln did is he kind of took 
inventory of the country. And he said, are we keeping up with the customs that we had at the outset? And he said, and this is, Adams actually says this. He says, the customs of their country are the bedding in which the Constitution rests. The customs are the bedding. You can't just have this Constitution over there in a dark alley or in a secret room hanging out by itself. If all the customs get stripped away from it, people will look at it and be like, Psh, that old thing? We don't need that. But if we keep the customs intact around it, it's important. It will survive. It will last. Now think about the church. Right? What is the church? The church provides the customs in which freedom is embedded, right? The customs that we do, the old boring liturgy that we do every day, the way that we speak, the creeds, the things that we've been repeating for thousands of years, those are the customs that restrict your freedoms. And they restrict your freedoms to give you freedom. Because they said, if you were left to your own devices, what are you going to do? You're gonna have a license for licentiousness. Right? You're going to move away from what you should do. True freedom, the answer to the euthyphro, true freedom is always restriction. And freedom is never, ever, ever the ability to do what you want. Lincoln says, we must always remember that freedom must be the ability to do what we ought, never what we like. Right? Never, well, never what we like, we should think, well, if we are fully sanctified or becoming more sanctified, the things that we like will start to become the things that make us free, right? That's the wonderful part of this, right? We're justified in Christ, but as we become sanctified, if we are becoming more and more like Christ, the freedoms that we used to see as restrictions to us start to become the things that we rejoice in, right? David says, I meditate on the, Lord, on the law of the Lord and I rejoice in it. Right? He says it gives me freedom. Why does it give him freedom? Because he was restricted. And that's the essence of the euthyphro. And that's the essence that I want to leave you with today. Um, anyone have any questions at all about the euthyphro? Yeah, in the back. Right, it's what gives you peace, right? It's what gives you peace, right? The surrounding. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing, right? The Psalms are what people mostly turn to um, when they're in times of trouble, right? When they need words of wisdom, when they, when they need peace. And that's because you see things like that, right? You see all these different things that you can be the bedding that's around you that says, no, 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 don't do those things because when you go your way, you're not going to be free. You're restricted. And we see that the world has become so, so restricted, right? They are caught and trapped by their own freedom. The freedom of the modern generation has completely enslaved us, right? The freedom of technology, right? We're slaves to the technology, the freedom that it provides, right? Um, I saw, you, you see all these people out there worried these days. It's like the, the cult thing for kids these days to talk about the zombie apocalypse, right? You see it all over the place, the zombie apocalypse. And there was a poster I saw the other day that said, why would you be worried about the zombie apocalypse when we're already zombies, right? And there was a bunch of kids that were walking around texting, texting on their cell phones, right? We, we, we've become enslaved to the things that we love, 
right? You are what you become, right? Just like they say, you are what you eat. You look like the things that you eat, right? You become the things you surround yourself by. And so we get enslaved by these passions, certainly. Um, yeah. I'm just thinking the ancient philosophers, and uh, they didn't really have a concept of the fall of man and trying to set up these idealized versions of society. Without a concept of the fall, you know, nothing could ever be perfect, even philosophically perfect, even theoretically perfect without the reality of the fall being considered. And even within the church, trying to build a society within the church, the ideal society within the church, still fallen and, you know, there's sin that is a very real thing that we deal with and struggle with. Yeah. You see that um, often, often there's, Plato and Aristotle weren't the only philosophers out there that were trying to set up this utopian or these ideals. And there's a lot of haughtiness to the philosophers. Plato was one that wasn't like that. Plato realized the downfalls of his own republic. But later on, we see philosophers that truly, in a world that they deny the fall, they think that there are answers. Like if you read Marx, right? Marx sees the idea of the proletariat, right, rising up. The proletariat, this unconscious mass of humanity will rise up. And once we eliminate private property, eventually mankind will stop being greedy, will stop. It will take a few generations. And Marx says famously, uh, the, the weapons of criticism can never outdo the criticism of weapons, right? He says, once we get these weapons and rise up and there's a bloody revolution, eventually if we get rid of all private property and we realize we're one universal consciousness, a kind of Zen Buddhist almost idea, um, then if we realize that you actually are me, we're a universal oneness, I would never want to harm you. Why? because I'd really be harming myself. And all mankind will, in an altruistic way, sing kumbaya and hold hands. So there are philosophers that are haughty enough to realize, no, 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 there is no fall. The fall is really these things submerged in, the, in the, maybe the economic structure. For Feuerbach, it was submerged in the religious culture. Feuerbach is, you can't understand Marx unless you understand Feuerbach. And Feuerbach said that all of life, the reason that we're not free is because we haven't escaped religion. Because all religion for Feuerbach was is we take human qualities and we push them onto a God. Humans are kind, so we say God is the ultimate kindness. Humans are wise, so we say God is the ultimate manifestation of wisdom. Humans can do just things, so God is justice. And in doing this, throwing all these attributes on God, what are we doing? We're denigrating the person. We're making ourselves less. And once we get rid of religion and realize how good we are, well, then we'll stop doing bad things. So there's a lot of haughtiness in some of these philosophers where they think they can have the solution. But the great test is history. And what we saw, especially in Marx's and Feuerbach's case, did that lead to the peace they were looking for? No, what did Marxism lead to in the world, right? It led to Stalin's death camps. It led to Mao. It led to Pol Pot, right? It led to death and suffering, right? Whereas once we realize, yeah, we're fallen, we can't do it. We need someone to establish that peace for us. Yeah, that's the only answer. Yeah. Anything that is ever written to deconstruct 
that is interpretation, and truth is whatever you want it to be. So how do you address all that? Because that is really turning into chaos. Sure. Um, I don't know if you were here um, in the first week, um, but we talked about, at least in my view, postmodernism is nothing more um, than a sort of cowardice that develops um, as an anti, um, a rejection of modernism, right? The modern world told us we could know things certainly. Descartes told us through specialization of labor, we could eventually break up the world and we would get certainty. Um, we even called World War I, right, the, world, the war that would end all wars. Right? We had a feeling that if mankind chipped in and got together and we lived in cities and we studied and through the Enlightenment, we could know all answers. And then we saw World War I and World War II, this nasty disasters, world wars for the first time. And because of that, people immediately knee-jerk reaction, abandon the idea, no, no, we can't have truth at all. Everything is completely relative. Um, so we saw this reaction of the modern world that we're scared of absolute certainty. So we say there is no such thing as certainty. Um, but yeah, that's difficult in the academic realm to deal with because the answer would be, well, John says, right, I am the, John said, Christ says in John, I am the way, I am the truth, I am like nobody comes to God but through me, but I am the truth. And, right, and that truth cannot be deconstructed because it's not outside of space and time, like Kant would say, right? It's not over there by itself. In the incarnation, the truth came into us, right? It came into our reality, into our concepts where we could understand it. And so we have the face, right? We have the face of truth right there. But if you deny the incarnation, yeah, you're left with postmodernism. You're left with nihilism. You're left with doubt. You're left with relativism. And that's a really, really crappy place to be left. Um, but that's what Nietzsche realized. Um, and that's why Nietzsche was the only real true atheist philosopher, right? We have the modern atheist philosopher that's going to say, there is no truth, but there's certain things we should do. Let's love one another. Why? Nietzsche says, if there's no truth, I'm going to become the ubermensch. I'm going to be the overman. I'm going to do whatever helps me out. And if I want to die of syphilis, I'll die of syphilis if I want to, because I wanted to. Why? Because life is meaningless. Right, but that's the only choice you have. Um, as C.S. Lewis would say, right, th there's no middle ground area. You either accept Christ or you accept absurdity. Because if God does not exist, you're nothing but matter. And Doug Wilson always says, if everything is matter, nothing matters. Right? There is nothing that matters. If you're nothing but atoms and atomic chemistry, nothing matters. Right? Um, so that would be the answer. Yeah, it's the rest of the world. You can't give them a real answer because there is one answer. And if you reject the one answer, you're left with absurdities. Um, <laughs> I address them outside of the classroom when I'm not going to get in trouble. <laughs> I address them on the side. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would direct them to things like that. I would, uh, in the Euthyphro, uh, when we go through this, we go through this in the, in the uh, class, and we go through, you know, what is the idea of freedom? And we try to break down that, you know, freedom can't be to do what you want. Um, it has to be to do what is good, which then begs the question of, well, what is good, Justin? What is the good thing? And I would say, well, I'll give you my answer right here. You know, I can't tell them it's the answer in school because I'll get fired, but I'll say, well, here's where I found my answer, right? This is my guidebook, um, and that's the answer that they could follow. Um, but yeah, it's very, very difficult um, if you're looking for job security. <laughs> Any other questions? Hmm? Come again, I'm not sure what the question is. No, I would, 
Not at all. I would say that that idea is based on logic. Um, because if you actually deny God, right, if you're like Nietzsche, God is dead, and you do an ontological reduction and realize, well, then there is, I don't come from anything, and I have no telos, I'm not moving towards any purpose, then there is no purpose. This is all, as Shakespeare would say, sound and fury signifying nothing, right? It's, we, we, we write things, we speak to one another, we do things, but in the end, we end up in the dirt and nothing matters. Right? That's what it is. I think it's logic. Right? If you reject God, you should be a postmodern nihilist. It's your only option. You shouldn't reject God and then say, yes, but I think there's truth out there. How? Right? Because Plato said virtue is one. It's one and the same. If God exists and God is goodness, well, then we have a standard. But if God doesn't exist, goodness doesn't exist, there's no standard anymore. So I would think the postmodern worldview is completely 100% wonderfully logical if you reject God. It's what you're left with. You have to go there. Um, and to not go there is what Nietzsche would say Kant's doing. He's being a coward. He wants to reject God, but he's too scared of the repercussions, so he doesn't do that. Um, so I'd say 100% logical to do that. Luckily, we don't have to uh, fall back on that. Anybody else? All right, let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this opportunity um, where we can get together and get away from the daily uh, talking that we do and speak um, and search for truth. Um, and we thank you for the opportunity that we have to do that freely in this country um, without the risk of persecution um, that we see going on daily in the rest of the world. And we pray for all the brothers and sisters in Christ who do suffer that suffering on a daily basis around the world, um, that you would provide the freedom of the boundaries that we have here um, for them as well. And in your name we pray, amen. All right. Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs>